You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. It's Friday afternoon, so it's time for the weekly wrap. And this week, I'm speaking to Liston Mainchies, who's an independent economic and financial advisor. You can reach him at Liston at Liston.co.za. It's been quite a week market-wise, hasn't it, Liston? Volatility all over the place. Everybody, um, one stage being... Uh, rather nervous about all sorts of international events beyond their control, and then suddenly it's all forgotten, well, nearly forgotten, certainly from a market performance point of view, a market participant performance point of view. Well, yes, I, I'm not sure, and we're not going to call it the yo-yo uh, market year, because we started January pretty well in nearly every place, and then suddenly we had uh, an Iranian attack, and we had... Uh, a coronavirus attack, and suddenly January was horrible. Now suddenly everything is forgotten, and February is great, at least for the first week. And here we are with, you know, some supposedly good numbers on the unemployment front. Uh, we've cleared the, the uh, impeachment story. Not that anybody should have been surprised. The, the State of the uh, Union, again, uh, a bit of uh, a theatre, I'd almost call it theatre of the absurd, but I have to be very careful with the way I, I, I say these things these days. Yeah, me too. So um, Nancy Pelosi ripping up the speech, you know. is uh, That was it, silly, wasn't it? we're accustomed to. That was really silly. I mean, I thought it was a fit of peak and I thought it was over dramatic and she would have done the Democratic Party far more good service by just sitting there and being quiet. But to do that, I didn't think I... On the the other hand, Donald Trump refused to shake hands with her. That's true. So so naturally she was a little bit peeved. Yeah, but rise above it, I say. Turn the other cheek. Yes, we'll talk about politics later on if we can, but uh, has there been anything that has really stood out for you this week? I mean, the mining in Darbar, I know that sometimes you go to the mining in Darbar. I've spoken to a couple of people. I've spoken to a chap from Investec Asset Management in London, and I spoke to Peter Major as, as well. And it seemed to me that the mood it wasn't as despondent as certain years in the past, but it wasn't effusive or ebullient either. Well, again, I think uh, you know quite a few of them are just too happy with where they are now, and like all of us, you know, they're saying, "But can it last? Where will it go to?" Too many questions, and you know what? What one finds at any event, whether it's the mining in Daba or some other conference somewhere, it is basically the week's news immediately before that relevant to that conference. So, you know, suddenly to get uh, commodities falling like they did because of the uh, uh, coronavirus, uh, as they're calling it, or the Wuhan uh, virus, as other people call it, uh, naturally everybody says, well, you know, I might have been more positive, but I can't be now. So I do think that, you know, cast a pall over, over the entirety. And I do think some very valid points were made, uh, and most notably by the, by the usual uh, speakers, and, uh, you know, that I, I deliberately don't want to mention names here in case people think I'm, I'm, I'm picking on them. But, you know, leaders in the community saying, you know, it takes time to start a mine and you really need, you know, a, a, an environment in which you can see the path ahead and you have certainty. And by the way, that was echoed by Angela Merkel when, when she was here on, on her visit. And I'm not sure whether she's attending the, uh, the tennis tonight. I wouldn't be surprised if she has the opportunity in Cape Town uh, to be able to do that. Uh, and just by the way, I think, uh, you know, the, the listeners 
can appreciate that this is actually something on the world stage. It is not possible for many other places to host the exact ingredients of uh, a Federer, uh, Trevor Noah, and an Adal uh, Bill Gates combination. I mean, this you will not see again. So I would imagine that the number of viewers will be considerable. Mm. And, of course, playing late at night, like 8 o'clock, uh, it, it will be well televised in the United States and I should think Europe as well. Where are they so holding think, it? Where yeah. are they holding it, Liston? Because I just go, you know, you remember my colleague Wesley from Fine Music Radio. He's um, he's going to see it. Where is it? Where is it? I don't know, actually. I, Cape Town is as far as I've got. Uh, and uh, not having been invited or being able to get a ticket, I, I will be watching it on on, on the screen. Mm. But my point is, this is fantastic and wonderful and marvellous, and I was just hearing on the radio that the Nflovu Choir, that uh, did so well on America's Got Talent, will be doing the uh, some of the entertainment there as well. So what a brilliant showcase for South Africa, and let's hope that this opportunity is not wasted. No, you're absolutely right. And if we cover ourselves in glory and it's, it's beautifully organised, there aren't any traffic problems, there aren't any parking problems, and the match is played in good spirit and everyone has some fun, as well as watching two extraordinary athletes, I think, as you quite rightly say, it's a nice showcase for Cape Town and for the Republic. Just as long as they have a backup generator for the floodlights. Oh, here we go. Yeah. They would, <laughs> sorry, had to put that one in. But just... Just changing the subject slightly, Lindsay, I listened to your interview with Mark Lamberti uh, uh, last night. Russell Lamberti. Uh, sorry, Russell Lamberti yes. uh, last night. And a fascinating um, uh, amount of thought uh, must have gone into his preparation for this. Uh, and he's raising some very, very important questions. I mean, I would dissociate myself with any any comments relating to political parties, you know, wherever. Mm. But as a as a vision of the fact that you know the central banks of the world are now custodians of far more than they used to be, and the consequences thereof, and the, that he was able to bring it in to a situation, and I I I did actually quite laugh when he said, you know, the, the, the Fed is now a hammer looking for any nail that might derail the economy. Yes, it was well put, wasn't <laughs> and, it? Yes. And, and having been also, well, the question is who is wielding the hammer? But the point was a very thought-provoking article, and I, I would recommend that uh, listeners who didn't hear it uh, go to Strictly Business Podcast and look up Lamberti Land. Yes, it was good. I mean, at the end, there was a controversial comment. I debated it with the team and said, should we put this out? And I don't want to censor something because um, it's up to you to make your mind up about uh, certain statements in certain podcasts. And this one was particularly controversial, according to, to people that have come back to me and lambasted me and actually been quite vitriolic about what no, was said, but it was, it was, you've got to put it out there. And if you don't like it, then come back and we'll give, give you the right to reply. Well, again, as I say, I, I, I liked it because of its thought-provoking nature, but I think uh, many people might not have heard your risk disclaimer at the end, where you're saying, you know, the opinions are those of the broadcasters themselves, not necessarily the organisation that they represent, mm. and they are only valid at the point of time at which they're saying it and don't hold us to account in perpetuity. I, again, I just think that's a very important disclaimer. Maybe you, you want to put one or two of those lines 
almost as an intro to your your shows, especially where there is something controversial. Yes. My take on it, and, and it, it, it's from a completely different vantage point, uh, but it's along the same lines. We're in an era we have never seen before where the cure for all ills is to have lower interest rates. Now, that doesn't sound like anything that I've read or is in any textbook uh, of more than 10 years ago. And I did take it amiss of uh, Alan Greenspan in part of his tenure, which I shared with you, <clears throat> that he didn't seem to see dangers and realize that as the custodian of the uh, monetary policy, there was a time to shake the tree and make sure that, you know, uh, the, the th items didn't reach a stage where they would all fall down together. Um, but no, be that as it may, we had a global financial crisis and the cure for risk-taking activities was to make risk-taking even cheaper. Now, that almost defies description. So along with Russell, I'm saying, you know, we want to ask questions and say, is this real? Is, uh, you know, where can we go to from here? And much more important for our listeners and uh, uh, even the country is what happens next? How can we prepare for what is coming? So, again, I'll, I'll just recommend uh, listeners to uh, uh, to go to the Lamberti Land podcast and just uh, just see what is happening. Just my take on this one, again, uh, and, and it's something that is a lot older than, than you might think, but there's a part of, of monetary uh, studies called the circular flow, and you can read it on a number of places. So just if you look up circular flow economics, and I'll quote you just from one website, it says the circular flow of income diagram is a simplified representation of the functioning of a free market economic system. It illustrates how businesses interact with the other economic participants within the key macroeconomic markets that coordinate the flow of income through the national economy. Uh, long sentence, but believe it or not, I've been using something similar to that as part of my thought processes probably for three decades. And if you think that's new, uh, the actual story is you need to go back to Frank Knight, who was writing about this at the University of Chicago back in the 1920s and possibly even earlier than that. Uh, so, you know, the circle comes round. Uh, and he was using it, you know, more uh, indicating its impact on business, which is where we kind of come in, is what is the impact on business? We discussed it before. I mean, one of the situations that for cheap money is that it's supposed to cause a trickle-down effect, but actually for the thinking people and, and whose bonuses depend on a rising share price, it's logical to use the money not to build a factory, not to pay the workers more, but to go and buy your shares back. Now, golly, did anybody write that in a treatise around about 2009 or 2010? I wonder if... So I just think yeah, we I just need to talk about... I wonder if, Liston, if, if you took away every single share buyback over the last 10, 11 years, where the market would, would be now. I mean, I, I don't understand the difference between paying dividends and buying back shares from a tax point of view, tax treatment point of view, or an efficiency angle. But it just seems to me that there's been an awful lot. And although they've slowed down a bit, they're still there. Now, well, the point is this. There are only new shares issued 
unlike bonds where governments are perennially issuing more and more, and we've discussed this, Russell mentioned a bit of it, and, you know, these numbers are huge. We're talking about a budget deficit in the United States of a trillion dollars, and then we get excited about 75 billion. Well, I promise you, 75 billion is not big in relation to a trillion. Mm. But never mind that. The point is, if I buy shares back, I'm using the money that I've got in the bank, earning 1%, to buy shares that are yielding 3%. That is a gimme. Now, the real question on this money flow is, where does the money go? So, effectively, the money leaves our bank account, buys shares from whoever is selling them, and it goes into their bank account, and shares are therefore uh, extinguished. Let's put it that way. Now, that means we pay, have the same profits, but we're sharing it with fewer people. That is bound to increase our profitability. That's good. That pushes the price up. But the second part to that is it depends who we bought from. If we bought from mom and pop, uh, then the money is back down where people are buying cars and goods and TVs. Uh, and maybe uh, subscribing to Netflix. But if we are buying from another major holder, he now has cash and not shares. So he goes around looking for other shares to buy, which pushes the price. Uh, I don't know if I'm getting the circular argument, but a circular flow uh, argument in, but that's really part of what makes markets. And that's one of the reasons why over the past however many years I've been saying to you, but what will stop this market going up? And I still haven't seen enough. Yes, you get a scare. Yes, you get a coronavirus. Yes, you get the Fed raising rates once. And my goodness me, it's a catastrophe for three days. And then it's how I'm off we go. So I just think, you know, the more we discuss some of these, I think I call them esoteric articles on your show, and the more people who get to listen to them, uh, the better it's going to be. It's, some of it is is purely educational, because I find a lot of market commentators are telling us what happened in the market, uh, very little excitement about, you know, the reasoning behind it and the actual money flows, the thought processes of the investment managers and the thought processes of financial advisors who put money into the hands of the investment managers, whether they want it or like it or not. Conversely, they take money away from a manager uh, and suddenly he has to become a seller when he would much rather be buying. So I just think if we put a little bit more thought in, in these programs to the actual circular flow of money when deals are done and, and what it might mean uh, – Maybe I'm waxing on too much. No, no, you're not at all. It's a good explanation. But uh, how long it can last, I, I don't know. But um, the era of cheap money is very much with us. And the one point that came out on several interviews this week, several podcasts on strictlybusinesspodcast.com, was that arrows and quivers were mentioned. In other words, not many arrows left in the Fed's quiver. How much more can it do? Should there be a crisis? Let's say the coronavirus or something else does spring a surprise and they have to do something really drastic. It's not as if they can cut interest rates. I suppose they can pump more money into the system and cut more tariffs. I don't know, Liston, but do you, do you think they're in danger of having shot their bolt? Well, again, they have alternative arrows they haven't really used yet. Uh, and you came up with a novel idea of actually putting money into every person's pocket. Yes, I like that now, one. Now, that would stimulate the bottom end of, 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 the, of, of the, the cycle that, that I'm talking about. More goods and more services would be consumed or could be consumed. 
And maybe that money doesn't immediately go back in the form of buying shares. It is done elsewhere. But the point is there are different opportunities and they have to go, obviously, in association with fiscal policy. So if by chance uh, there is yet another tax cut on the argument that that works better, uh, then somehow that that uh, lack of funds into the fiscus has to be met by the issue of more bonds, uh, which again, either the Fed mops up uh, or they allow uh, uh, to be there, in which case interest rates would rise. So I just think, you know, the policymakers really talk, uh, what, what can I say, in a very, trans, a very uh, 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 opaque way. Uh, I read the reports, you know, and, and the Fed communiques, and it sounds like a very slow process of doing the same thing over again without making a decision. Honestly, if the people on the central bank boards were paid per decision instead of paid per do nothing, I don't think that they, they would eat. Uh, how many times have we heard, uh, we'll do nothing? How many times do they say, well, it's unsure and therefore we're just leaving things as they are? Uh, <laughs> if you draw the graph of the actual move, you'll be astounded how few there are in any 10-year period. Let's have a look at uh, something that's come out since we've started talking, and it's the US jobs number, and this is one of your um, pet subjects. It says here, an unseasonably mild January helped power the US jobs market to more gains, with non-farm payrolls rising 225,000 for the month, well above Wall Street estimates. So the sun comes out, and it doesn't snow, so people get jobs apparently. I don't know how that works. Why not just put on a jacket, even if it is um, snowing? But anyway... The unemployment rate ticked higher to 3.6%, but for the right reason, it says here, again, a positive spin, as the labor force participation rate increased 0.2 percentage points to 63.4%, matching its highest level since June 2013, according to data released earlier today. Economists surveyed by Dow Jones were looking for payroll growth of 158,000 and the jobless rate to stay at three and a half, its lowest in more than 50 years. You don't need to remind um, the President of the United States that it's the lowest for 50 years. Just please explain for people like myself what the labour participation rate's significance is. Please listen. No, well, again, in any period, whether it be one month or one year, a number of people retire, drop out of the uh, workforce, Emigrate even. So there are either more or less people in the actual uh, job market. Right. And then again, you get new entrants when schools close uh, or when uh, extra people arrive from Mexico looking for jobs. And so your participation rate really is just a ratio of those in employment compared to those who are actually looking for jobs. Now, there's a little tweak on that one in that the people who are perennially unemployed, and there's a special term for them, but I'm I'm using the word perennial. They haven't had a job uh, in over 12 months. Um, They are not counted in either sector as people in the workforce uh, or as people would be wanting a job. (laughs) So, again, a little bit of distortion. But, again, Lindsay, I come back. It it, it must be, you know, the 120th time I've said this to you. But I'm looking at the table. It's produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States. And it talks about employment status of the civilian population by sex and age. And it turns out that if you look at the unemployment rate in January, not seasonally adjusted, 
That's 4%. And in December, it was 3.4%. Now, when you don't seasonally adjust, remember all the part-time workers packing extra boxes for Amazon or playing the part of of, uh, Father Christmas in a shopping mall, you know, they had jobs in December. So naturally, you know, when they hand back their their costumes or they're told that they're not needed for as many packing jobs, uh, the unemployment rate goes up. So we do seasonal adjustment. And if you look at seasonally adjusted, you'll find that the unemployment rate in the United States went up from December 3.5 to 3.6. So I can read as many articles as you care to tell me from Bloomberg and, and, and other media as to what interpretation they place on it. I simply say the numbers don't say enough, uh, but sometimes they actually contradict you know, the interpretation that people are, are putting on them. Let's look at the numbers. 225, that sounds a good number. Uh, if you look at it against, uh, you know, what it was previous uh, uh, number, uh, it's a lot better. So you are now actually saying, well, if it's a lot better, how come the unemployment rate rose? And you get into the same, same argument uh, uh, virtually every month. And so the, the, the real question, I think, is to look against a year ago. So a year ago, the unemployment rate in America was 4.4, and that's not seasonally adjusted, and also not seasonally adjusted this January, 4.0. And I say that means things are slightly better. Now we go to one of the questions I think you dealt with with Russell, very much a case of, you know, where do the new jobs come from? Have they been creating enough new jobs? And it turns out, and I've said this in a number of places, is that, you know, we have to be aware of the fourth industrial revolution. A lot of jobs are now being done by robots uh, very efficiently. And the the people who had those jobs now have to take lower paid and less skilled jobs. They get them, uh, but therefore they stay employed, but there is no pressure on wages. Hence, not much inflation. And the real question is whether those people consider, as they are being told, you're so much better off if you're doing a a lower paid job and probably at at more obscure hours. uh, I'm not sure that you go along with this. You say, well, I hear that the economy is running well. I hear that unemployment's going down. I hear that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having the best time of my life. And they've actually done a study and they show that certain parts, and particularly it's the lower paid workers, are considerably worse off relative to inflation. In other words, their pay packets are lower now in real terms than they were five and ten years ago. Despite the fact that Donald Trump in his State of the Union address the other night said, I've created seven million jobs, which he has done, or rather his administration does, or rather the economy has created seven million jobs along with the US Federal Reserve. He said that wages have soared. He said the word soared. They haven't soared at all in comparison previous job creation periods. Well, it depends on what we're saying here, whether it's the average. Because an average person, uh, you know, working at McDonald's is not earning what an IT guy in one of the top companies is earning. Mm. And I think, you know, what we are seeing here, and and you know me, I keep saying I'm not interested in averages anymore. I really want to know about the spread from top to bottom. And we most certainly know that the spread from top to bottom in virtually all countries has grown incredibly since the global financial crisis.
Let's have a look at a couple of things which have happened in the last half hour since the US job numbers have come out, and that is that the euro dollar has broken its recent range. The euro dollar to me is an incredibly important indicator. It goes up and down in very, very small increments on most, most days of the week, but it's suddenly gone from around about 111 a week ago to now 109, 109.60. So in other words, the US dollar getting stronger, and that means that people are starting to say, okay, the Fed is probably not going to cut rates anymore. In fact, the next move might even be to the upside. I haven't seen the US uh, Treasury market, but maybe you can have a look at that while I'm talking. Just it seems to me people are saying, well, that's it, 225,000, not the blowout number, but a number that tells you that the US economy is doing well enough for us not to cut rates anymore. What do you think about that? Because look at the RAND as well. RAND 1502, exactly where it was this time last week when the Dow fell 600 points. Yeah. Now, again, these are relatively small. You get my weekly charts and we've been Mm. fumbling and and mumbling along at the bottom for well over a year now. Everybody talks about the strength of the dollar, but it is actually minuscule. America has higher interest rates than uh, Europe. So if I've got a choice of investing at minus one in Germany and plus one in America, or plus two in America, I'm going to pick America. So I would say just on pure economics and meaning investment uh, flows, I would prefer to be in the dollar. You look at the actual growth rates in Europe and and in America, you would rather be in America. You look at company results, and by and large, uh, it's six or one and a half a dozen of the other, because many of the leading uh, companies in Europe, like the leading companies in America, are multinationals. But Money for money, I would probably prefer to be in a dollar denominated dollar assets and companies exposed to a, a, a reasonable uh, U.S. economy. I've covered some of the unemployment story, you know, in in all of that. But you know, from one eleven to one oh nine, I mean, I think Richmond did that in five minutes during during the day. <laughs> yeah, but I think the, the the difference between the volumes in Richmond and the volumes in the euro dollar are staggeringly different. But I, I know what you mean. But I think it is quite significant what has happened now. Euro dollar one oh one oh nine sixty, and I, I think you'll find that this may be uh, an entrenched trend that we're going to see uh, for the rest of for the rest of this year but we, we'll see mr trump may say that the fed is uh, the fed is run by idiots and uh, he'll ask to go to negative rates and the, the dollar will fall again we'll we'll see listen what else did you see well, this week is there any well, any, well, no, any, any sectors you like your, no, well you asked me about the u.s treasury yields mm. and i can tell you that the 10-year yield has dropped from 1.64 to 1.60 oh. which i think is a new low for this year and the 30 years gone from 211 to 206. So one way or the other, stronger dollar, lower bond yield. And I've been through this and, and, and I've heard people talking about, you know, how good and how safe and everything bonds are. I think they're the most dangerous items that I, I've seen. Hmm. And you only have to go back to my history where I borrowed money at 6% in South Africa in 1971, and suddenly the rate went up to 17. I nearly died carrying that bond. That was an absolute shock to the system. I bought a house. I bought a house in Parktown North in in Johannesburg when the interest rate was 24.5%. And of course, I was lucky. I picked picked the top of the market. So my bond bond came down consistently year after year. But, you know, we've had some wild swings in that country. Well, never mind. 
add, I've seen numbers change quite considerably in the States. Now, the conditions for that are not here because of the pressure on, on the Fed to do the impossible, create money. I mean, can you create money? I can't. But they can. Somehow, with a swish of the wand, they just say, we're going to buy more bonds. And their balance sheet goes into tatters, but nobody worries about the Fed going bust. They can't, you see. So uh, it's very peculiar. And I, I think, you know, when, when all is said and done, and I don't think it'll be in the next couple of years, but somebody is going to go through this. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Russell even mentioned it in his, his thing yesterday, uh, that it's just a case of sheer lunacy by people who should know better. Monetary insanity, he called it. Listen, anything else this week? I mean, any, any moves in asset classes, in share prices, in companies, results coming out? And ArcelorMittal was as a standout. There was a couple of gold trading updates. All sorts of things have been going on, particularly in the mining sector, to coincide with the mining in Darba. What does tweak? your interest? No, what, what I am saying, and I think I've mentioned it to you before, but I just, just deal with the two you've dealt with. If anybody didn't know that ArcelorMittal was in real trouble, I'm surprised. If anybody didn't know the golds were having a really good time, I'm surprised. If anybody didn't know that platinum's doing well and we're actually surprised that it's only, remind me, only 60% up earnings for implants. Yeah. Gosh, how sad that is. But you and I know they've gone from 15 rand to 150. Yeah. My goodness me, that's that's just a bit more than 60% up, I think. Yes. Now, that's a joke. But no, <laughs> coming back to what, what I have been telling people, and I say I'll share it with the listeners. And I have seen it uh, from one commentator by the name of Wandile Sislobo. And most importantly is that he is on the state president's economic advisory uh, council. So I think it's worth listening more to him than to me. But the point is, you can't have been driving around in Johannesburg and surrounding areas, which I know extend quite considerably, without noticing how green everything is. And if you go into the mealy fields, they are six feet high, whereas last year they were two feet high at the equivalent time of year. So we are having a wonderful agricultural season. Now, it isn't that big in GDP in the way it's measured and scored and everything. But what I am saying is that misses totally the point of the flows of money and the flows and the benefits to all members of society. So, golly, is Liston positive for the first time in an awfully long time? Here we go. With or, with, with, if, with or without a downgrade, with or without a, 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 a budget speech, you know, whatever. I'm saying this is something that you can't take away. You can't politically damage it, in my opinion. It is, uh, if I can say, God-given, and, and we should be totally grateful for the fact that for the first time in a number of years, virtually all parts of South Africa are having a wonderful uh, patch, both in, in terms of crops grown and in terms of feeding of the, of the cattle, sheep, and the like. So if you want a positivity, and it isn't just for this week, but it's the first time I've said it, this week. So there we go. Well done, Liston. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Your extended time. That's Liston Manchies from Liston at Liston.co.za. And um, Liston, I, I know you've changed your model when it comes to your excellent, excellent weekly charts. Now, how do people access these things? Because I think you're going to a pay model. Is that correct? Yes, I am. And uh, if they want to access, they should uh, email me, Liston at Liston.co.za. 
and I, I, I will put them on the mailing list as a trial, and if they like it, they will say, I wish to continue. If they say it's too much information, I don't need it, or uh, whatever they care to, but if they want to, it is on a pay. I can tell you one thing. If you are thinking of doing that, then goodness me. If you take every single recommendation, and it's very simple, it just says full bull or full bear or you know, neutral in, in Liston's own way, just just go to these things and do an analysis of the last three or four years that I've been following these, these charts, and you would have made money. So the subscription is a tiny, tiny amount compared to the money you would have made if you stuck to your guns and put in stop losses and all that sort of thing. Liston, that was a really good plug for you. I'll expect something in, in the post quite soon. That was Liston uh, Mainchies. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I'm going to be in Cape Town, uh, not next week, the week after. If you happen to be there, that'll be good. Okay, sir. See you then. That's Liston Mainchies, again from Liston at Liston.co.za. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.